Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Shannon's Shakespeare Sunday. It's a pleasure to have you all back. This is our fourth episode. I'm very excited. Once again, I'm Shannon Riley, a Shakespeare enthusiast, not a scholar, just somebody who's fanatic about the works of the Bard of Stratford-on-Avon. And it's my pleasure to come to you every Sunday uh, at 8 and 8 here on Internet Radio to talk a little bit about this amazing writer and all the work he has done. Now, in the past several performances or... uh, radio shows, I should say, I've been leading us up to Shakespeare arriving in London, and I had just gotten his life up to where he arrives in London, but I'm going to take a break from that for this episode. I'll come back to that next week. This week is a very important week because it's almost Halloween, my favorite time of the year. Oh, I'm so excited about Halloween. And since it's almost Halloween, I thought I'd do a very special Halloween episode focusing on Shakespeare's witches and ghosts. (gasps) Booga, booga, booga. It's nice and scary. And it's also really fascinating when you think about where it comes from and, and, and what all these uh, plays mean. But before we get to that, and once again, I'm Shannon Riley, and I want to hear from you. You can contact me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. ShannonJRiley.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let me hear your questions. Let me hear your responses to my stories, to my uh, program, and any ideas you have for future episodes or things you'd like me to explore. I'd love to hear from all of you at ShannonJRiley.com. And while you're there, check out some of my plays, some of my short films, and of course, all of these broadcasts will be uh, housed there as well, so you can catch up on all of the latest and neatest from Shannon Shakespeare Sundays. And since it is Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, I always start off with two things. The first thing I always start off with is a book suggestion, and it's an election year. And so I thought this book is a prime book for you to check out. It's called Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics by Stephen Greenblatt. I've read several of his books. Uh, He's a very good writer. And what he focuses on in this book, uh, which was published in 2018, is how Shakespeare treats tyrants in his works. And it's really a fascinating read, particularly here in an election year. Give it a gander. You might uh, just see somebody you might know popping up in those pages because it really does focus on the role of politics and the necessity for people who have power over other people to be good people. And it's very important, even now. So please remember, it's almost time to vote. If you voted already, bless you. Thank you for voting. If you haven't voted yet, please, please vote. Make your voice heard and make sure that this democracy continues on and on and on. It's Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics by Stephen Greenblatt, uh, published in 2018. And the Shakespeare quote of the uh, week, of course, it had to be this. It's, by the pricking of my thumbs, 
something wicked this way comes. That's from Macbeth, Act 4, Scene 1, The Weird Sisters. And they're going to start off our talk about witches. This first half of the episode, I'm going to talk about witches. Second half, I'm going to talk about ghosts. So I'm really excited about it. But another side note is I wanted to talk about my company that I'm lucky enough to be working alongside with. It's Lady Shakes, uh, all-female classic theater group. We're working on an all-female production of uh, Midsummer's Night Dream. Weather has turned cold here in Kansas, and the COVID numbers are still going up, so we've decided to suspend for a little while until it gets warmer and we can meet outside. Meeting inside right now, even with masks, that many people, it just doesn't feel like we're being responsible. So we're going to take a little break. But we know we're going to be back. We're going to be back in the spring. That company is working to become a 501c3. uh, And you're going to hear a lot more about Lady Shakes on these programs as we move forward. I'm really excited about them and everything they're doing. All right. So let's start in. Witches of Shakespeare. Okay. Um, I I love this topic. Now... As I said before on the show, before you talk about Shakespeare, you have to remember the period in which Shakespeare was writing, who he was writing for. To imagine that he was writing for all of us in 2020 is just ridiculous. These plays are 400 years old, and it was a very different society then. When it came to witches, they were very real and very, very dangerous. There was a period of great learning during the Renaissance in England, and a period of great reading and understanding, but also there was a renewed interest in the supernatural. Now, Elizabeth wasn't so concerned about witches. She did have several crimes uh, or um, laws in the book. There was a crime to commune with the devil, to hold black mass, um, and um, she had concerns for the what she considered to be old superstitions. Nevertheless, in 1562, Elizabeth enacted the Elizabethan Witchcraft Act, which passed that condemned the conjuring and the uh, communion with devils. Um, And let's be honest, it had to do with women more than anything else. They had a fear of a lot of different interesting things. And some of the most, uh, here's the Shakespeare fun fact. I forgot, I want to do my Shakespeare fun fact. The superstitions we have today, many of them were born in the Elizabethan period. One of them, for instance, was a fear of the black cat crossing your path because it was obviously a familiar to a witch that was crossing your path to bring you certain doom. They had a fear of walking under a ladder, not because they were afraid that something would fall on top of them, but because the ladder represented the climb to the gallows, and when you walked underneath it, you were enticing the devil to put you on the gallows. They had a fear of the number 13. All of that came from the Elizabethan period. They also had some bizarre ones. One of the fascinating superstitions I read about was they believed that if you were the last person to touch a man before he was hung, you were lucky. The guy who got hung wasn't so lucky. But even weirder, if you kept the right hand of a man who had been hung, it was a good luck charm. Kind of like some macabre rabbit's foot. Wasn't so lucky for him. The the Elizabethans were sickos. Let's just say that. All right, so witches really were a thing to them. And if your crops died, there could have been a witch. If there was um, um, a black death visited your family, what did you do to somebody? In Elizabethan England, there were 270 witch trials, and 247 of them were about women, while only 23 were about men. 
And it was women who were old, who were poor. They were unprotected. They kept animals like cats and toads and birds and a variety of other animals. It didn't matter that it was just some poor simpleton who was off on her own trying to get by. She could easily become a victim of a witch trial. And it was very hard, once you were accused of a witch, to prove you were not. Most of the ways to prove you were not were to die. They literally would tie you to a dunking stool and drop you into the water. If you floated, you were a witch. If you sunk, you were not. <laughs> Good for you. You died a Christian. Now, uh, interestingly enough, most of the witches in the Elizabethan period were not burned at the stake. Instead, they were hung. Um, as bad as it was in England and Scotland, it was far worse. King James the Sixth of Scotland, who became King James the First of England, was responsible for over 4,000 witch trials and burnings. He was a monster. And he believed that witches tried to stop him from marrying his wife from Denmark and called upon a huge storm to crash her ship. Many people think that it was this belief in this storm that put the idea in Shakespeare's head to use a massive tempest for the tempest. Um, he wrote a book called Demonology. It was literally the textbook on how to find and prosecute witches. King James believed that they were real. And so when Shakespeare came, uh, when he came to power in England and Shakespeare had to write a play for the king as a member of the king's men, he immediately picked an old story called Macbeth. Oh, the Scottish play. You know, you're not supposed to say Macbeth out loud. You're supposed to say the Scottish play if you're superstitious, which I am not. But I'm going to tell you why I think people have believed Macbeth to be a superstitious or, or a cursed play. And it had to do with how it opened. It opened with Shakespeare's witches, the three weird sisters. They are conjuring around a big pot, throwing in eye of note and uh, newt, sorry, and um, toads and frogs. They are reach, uh, chanting uh, double, double toil and trouble. This writing of Shakespeare's was so good and seemed so authentic that people actually thought the actors were witches. They thought real spells were being cast upon them. And the three weird sisters, Shakespeare's greatest witches and only witches, were actually casting a spell on the audience themselves. There were accounts of people screaming during productions of Macbeth and running from the theater. Um, now, Shakespeare gets the idea of the three sisters from the old story of Macbeth. Macbeth was a very old tale by the time he started writing it. But a lot of it came from Hol Holinshed's Chronicles from 1587, where he writes about the history of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And the story of Macbeth goes all the way back to an ancient king of Scotland, um, who was believed to rule Scotland for a very short time. And he was also a great, great, great ancestor of King James. So it was a dangerous ploy to try and do this play about witches for a man who condemned witches. But Shakespeare had a reason for it. At the time, King James had said he was going to come to England to unite England, old and new religions. But he didn't live up to that. The Catholic Church remained uh, persona non grata. Anyone practicing the old faith was still in risk of being arrested and jailed. And so I think Shakespeare really wanted to make a message to uh, King James. You should really be thinking about your people and ruling justly. 
don't be a tyrant. Um, the witches are so clever, though. They never, ever come out and say, you will do this or you will do that to Macbeth. Instead, they simply greet him as the Thane of Corridor, a great knight ship that is upon him. He's not the Thane of Corridor. As far as he knows, the Thane of Corridor still lives and is a great and honorable man. He doesn't realize during the battle that they just had that the Thane of Corridor tra traitor and the king has decided to put upon Macbeth the title of Thane of Corridor. So with these witches, they slowly introduce an idea into Shakespeare's or into Macbeth's head that he deserves better. He should lead. and uh, But they also lead him towards a very dangerous curse, saying that Banquo, whose good friend who's with him, will not be a king, but his children will be king. Macbeth will become king, but he will have no children who will be king. And he sets, they set them up very slowly for this dangerous and scary ride that Macbeth goes on with the witches. Now, keep in mind that the three witches really are borrowed all the way back from Greek mythology and the three fates. The three fates who are uh, blind women who see the future and can predict what's going to happen. They are prophets. Witches as prophets was a brand new idea to Elizabethan England. At the time, they were just people who cursed you. They were people who ruined your crops or gave you a great disease. Shakespeare presents them in a very classical way. As that witch is a prophet. That witch is able to be above and beyond the pettiness of human life. So... The witch's prophet, or the weird sister, or actually in the first folio they're referred to as wayward sisters, um, these sisters completely, completely control Macbeth by doing nothing but planting seeds of his own destruction. Now, there are those of you out there who know this play, and you're saying, there was a fourth witch, Shannon, there, there was Hecate. Hecate was the queen of witches who's seen towards the end of the play. Lots of scholars, and again, I'm not a scholar. I'm going to repeat that every time. I am not a scholar. I'm simply an enthusiast. But a lot of scholars do believe Shakespeare never wrote this part of the play. Heck, it wasn't in his play. It actually comes from William uh, Middleton, uh, who wrote a play called The Witch, the Witch with a witch by the name of Hecate shortly after Shakespeare died. And many people believe it was so popular that they took pieces of that play or the idea of that play and inserted it into Shakespeare's Macbeth so that Hecate could appear there as well. Yes, the Hecate is very different than the Hecate that is in uh, Middleton's play, but it also came along with four songs. One of the reasons why they believe Shakespeare did not write this part of the play is the fact that it doesn't further action. It doesn't further action at all. And that's pretty rare for Shakespeare to just put something out there that doesn't further any action. Also, it just seems different. It seems like a way to include more music, include more stories. But, unfortunately, I don't think he wrote it. So, there were three witches in Shakespeare's mythology. Three witches, the Weird Sisters and Macbeth. But I'm not done with the spooky yet. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back from that break, I'm going to introduce you into my favorite topic of Shakespeare, his ghosts. We'll be back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, please remember to stay barred to the bone. And we'll see you on the other side of this message. 
Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday here on KCEF Digital Radio, the best of local radio here in Topeka. Uh, digital Radio, you can find it at 785.com, KSEF 785.com to hear all of the great programming that we do on the show. This is, of course, part of that great programming or mediocre programming, depending upon your outlook. I'm Shannon Riley, and this is Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Now, I'm doing a special Halloween episode, and this is part two of that episode, Ghosts. Oh, booga, 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 booga. How about another Shakespeare quote from A Midsummer Night Dream, a show I'm working on with the Lady Shakes. This is the quote. Now it is the time of night that the graves all gaping wide. Everyone lets forth his sprite in the churchway paths to glide. I love spooky stuff. And we get to talk about the best of Shakespeare's ghosts. Now, first of all, again, ghosts were not unique to dramatic literature. Certainly, Shakespeare wasn't the first one to do it. It goes as far back as a Greek playwright, Seneca, who used ghosts in his work, and many playwrights from the Greek era did, as well as gods and other supernatural beings. The very first ghost story was by Pliny the Younger, which goes all the way back to 1 AD, where he describes finding a nearly transparent all white figure wrapped in chains gliding across the earth he follows it till it points down at a part of the earth and then disappears the next day he takes authorities there and they find a dead body which leads to the arrest and the conviction of his neighbor for killing this man it is a fascinating element that the ghost of 1 AD was transparent white wrapped in chain. Is that where all of this comes from, these kind of stereotypes? Well, Shakespeare was certainly aware of them. And uh, uh, Shakespeare's ghosts, though, are unparalleled to other ghosts that appeared in plays. Let's take, for instance, Thomas Kidd, who wrote The Spanish Tragedy, one of the most successful Elizabethan plays. It was written in 1615. Now, there's a Spanish ghost that opens and ends the play, but it never interacts with the people who are in the play. It kind of serves as a prologue and epilogue. A lot of ghosts in Shakespeare's time were unable to communicate with the living, were unable to be heard by the living. Shakespeare changes all of that, and in a very exciting way. Now, he goes into ghosts slowly. His first ghost actually was in an early play called Richard III, which we all know as the Humpback King. Now, Richard is about to go on to his great battle scene, and he falls asleep in his tent before the battle, and he's visited by several ghosts, all ghosts of people he has murdered over the years, all of them predicting that he will die, that he will fail at his attempt, and he will soon be all be over for him. They also appear to the Earl, who he's about to battle the next day, and proclaim him victorious and tell him he will certainly win. But this is very different than Shakespeare's later ghosts. These ghosts, multitude as they are, are come to Shakespeare, uh, come to Shakespeare's characters in a dream. They both wake up and say, oh, what a fascinating dream I just had. But that's far from interacting with the humans around them. So they could dismiss it as a dream. They could conceive that it possibly wasn't even there or even real. Shakespeare's later ghosts are much better. His next ghost is Caesar's ghost. And Caesar comes and warns of vengeance. Now, again, typical vengeance. I also think it's fascinating that Shakespeare's ghosts were probably powdered in flour or some other powder so that they were all white when they arrived and they talked as well. But Caesar appears and uh, predicts that he will have vengeance against Brutus for what Brutus has done to him. Brutus is able to talk to Caesar. Brutus is able to interact with Caesar, but Caesar will have none of it. 
he won't speak much to him and warns that he will see him soon and it will seal his fate. Again, this is a step forward in the ghost genre, a pretty brilliant step forward uh, uh, to bring in Caesar's ghost, great Caesar's ghost. Um, But it's not the end of Shakespeare rewriting what ghosts are. The next ghost he introduces, and this is a great one, again, back to the Scottish play Macbeth, it's Banquo's ghost. What's neat about Banquo is that Banquo was Macbeth's best friend, but because Macbeth is terrified that his son Fleance, and that's the name, by the way, Fleance, his son Fleance will replace him on the crown. So he sends two murderers out to kill uh, Banquo and Fleance. Banquo sees the murders, sends his uh, son riding off in the dark, and confronts them himself. He's killed. Eviscerated, in fact, he stabbed multiple times. But that, meanwhile, miles and miles away, Macbeth is having dinner with his wife and his lords. But when he arrives at the dinner table, an empty seat is not empty at all. Banquo's ghost sits in that seat. He's dripping blood. He has gore and mat- gnashes all over him, and he reaches out and toasts Macbeth with a cup of wine. No one else sees him. Macbeth screams in terror, frightening the knights, and of course, Lady Macbeth too, who has to make excuses for her poor, ailing husband. Macbeth is the only one who sees this ghost. Of course, the audience sees him too, and considering how gory Elizabethan people were, imagine this actor covered in sheep's or pig's blood, walking out on stage, sloshing as he walks, dropping into a chair, and toasting wine towards Macbeth. The audiences must have been so thrilled, so totally taken into the story. And the fear of seeing this man who has just killed a king, who has usurped his throne, who believes that the world is his oyster, as I quote Shakespeare again. Um, Yet he is unrattled. He's unnerved. He's about to fall apart, all because his best friend, who he knows is dead, is sitting at a table, dripping blood and cheering him with wine. This is... Macbeth's downfall as he continues to spiral out of control. His wife starts to be plagued with nightmares. She can't wash the blood off her hands and she ends up committing suicide off stage. So Shakespeare's ultimate demise and ultimate falling to the end starts with a visit from Banquo's ghost. Great ghost story, but it's not near the best ghost story as the ghost who appears to him, his main character, in Hamlet. Hamlet Sr., Shakespeare's dad. He's king until he's killed by his own brother Claudius, who pours poison in his ear. Not really certain how that works. Never saw an egg of the Christie murder mystery where somebody got killed through poison in the ear. Nevertheless, that's what it was. Shakespeare, <coughs> excuse me, has um, Macbeth's or Hamlet's father killed and then takes his crown and takes his wife. Macbeth is a poor Hamlet is supposed to take this. The Prince of Denmark is depressed, upset, but his mother keeps telling him, get over it. He's your uncle and now you're dead. Welcome to Arkansas. So in the meantime, this ghost starts to regularly appear up on the parapets. In the middle of the night, the king walks again, bloody, white with um, ghosts, walking and moaning and complaining of life uh, and what and the damnation that um, awaits him. Shakespeare's best friend, or, or I'm sorry, um, Hamlet's best friend, 
finds out about uh, this ghost appearing and goes to Hamlet and says, you know, dude, you, you really should go up on the roof tonight and see what shows up. Horatio and Hamlet, of course, do. And what they find is unbelievable. A walking spirit, a ghost, a phantasm that moves off into the uh, mist. Hamlet says, all of you stay here. I'm going after it. And he runs after this ghost. Now, here is where Shakespeare makes a big departure from other ghosts of the time. They communicate. Not only is this a ghost that is related to him, immediately connected to him, of course, after vengeance as well. But this ghost spurs action. This ghost tells Hamlet what he must do. This ghost tells him, you must avenge me. And the other fascinating thing about this ghost is it's mortal. He fears his own demise. He fears hell for the crimes that he committed in his own life. This was a remarkable thing to present not only a ghost that is A, showing up at a regular interval, you know where you can meet him. B, he can interact with you, talk to you, tell you what he needs, and spur you on to action. And third, he is in fear of his own immortal soul. Immortal souls are a big thing to Elizabethans. They're a big thing to a lot of us. He, Shakespeare, I mean, is able to create this immediate visceral reaction through his ghost of Hamlet's father that makes you stop, makes you listen, makes you fear for your own life. Shakespeare's father, uh, Hamlet's father, is the best Shakespearean ghost of them all. Steals the show totally. Now, of course, not everyone who gets killed comes back as a ghost in Shakespeare. If it were, Polonius would be dropping in on Hamlet saying, hey, you remember when you stabbed me through that curtain? But it's the, it's the person who drives the action. It is the people who can make you most involved in that story. And Shakespeare's... Um, Hamlet's ghost, his father's ghost, is the most powerful, potent ghost of Shakespeare's time. Shakespeare didn't use ghosts a lot. Uh, He did use uh, 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 them in in several little stories of presence and an idea. But the Elizabethan audiences were very aware of superstition. They were very aware of things that go bump in the night. And Shakespeare used it to an incredibly frightening detail. But, you know, Elizabethans were like that. Their, the countryside was a police state. Um, in order to walk into London, you had to cross a bridge that would have heads on pikes of all the traitors that you would cross under as you walked by. Stories of witch hangings and trials existed in Elizabethan period and across a border in Scotland. Thousands of burnings of witches existed. Many of the castles in Shakespeare's time and the large manor houses were reported to be haunted even then. Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth's mother, was said to walk the palace she lived in. So there was a great deal of in touch with the supernatural. There was also good supernatural, and I want to end on the good side. There were women who were considered healers. Women who understood maybe the path of good medicines that were found in the earth and the grasses and certain plants, and they would apply them to their neighborhoods, to their people around them. These people were called white witches. 
they existed. And nearly every community had a wise old woman that they would go to for a poultice, for a remedy, and for a prayer. So these spells, prayers, whatever, were sometimes put to the side of the angels, put to try and defend us and make things better. But sometimes this butchering idea of human mankind that doesn't like anything different, that white witch could easily be accused of a black witch by someone else. And then there is little that could be done to save her. I hope you have a great Halloween. I really love Halloween myself. And I hope you've been enjoying this program. If not... Well, let's keep that to yourself. But if you do want to talk to me, give me, uh, drop me an email at shannonjriley.com. Riley's R-E-I-L-L-Y on shannonjriley.com. I'd love to hear from you about any future stories or ideas you'd like to do. I will be going back to my story of Shakespeare's life, how he ended up in London and became known as the greatest playwright of his time. Um, I will return to that next week. In the meantime, trick or treat. And have a great time. And remember to stay barred to the bone.